Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Kufhei Munalaf by the two dots. Umar quotes the Mishnah, Katov Achat Notrikun, if a person writes one letter that represents a much larger word, Bishua ben Beteriz Mechayev, and Chachamim are Putrim. Amrab Yochanan Mishim Rabiosi ben Zimra, Minayin Lelashon Notrikun Minatorah. Where do we find such a phenomena in the Torah that we have word or letters that represent much bigger words that are called abbreviations, acronyms for something more meaningful than the actual word itself. Shinamar. It says by Avram Avinu ki av amon goim nitaticha. You see already from the quotation marks that they're going to darshan the word av and hamon. Av nitaticha leumot bachor nitaticha beumot. So the av represents that I will make you a father unto the nations. And before you will be a chosen amongst the nations. The word hamon really means chaviv natatecha b'umot, the chet and the hey being used interchangeably over here. I will make you beloved amongst the nations. Melech natatecha b'umot, I made you a king amongst the nations. Vatik natatecha b'umot, I made you an older statesman amongst the nations. And neaman natatecha b'umot, and I made you faithful to the other nations, are, you are the faithful amongst the nations. But here we see the word Av Hamon, which is the promise that Hashem makes to Abraham, that he will be an Av Hamon Goim Nitaticha. The Gemara here darshans it as Notrikun of Av Hamon, each letter representing a different word. Rabbi Yochanan Didei Amar, that was Rabbi Yochanan in the name of Yossi ben Zimra. Rabbi Yochanan himself said, from the Anochi that is found in the Aser that he wrote, Anochi Hashem Alokecha, Shehotzeiticha, Meheretz Mitzrayim, that is Notrikun. Notrikun is Ano, Nafshi, Tivat, Yehavit. So the simple way to understand it is that I myself wrote the Torah and granted it or gave it to B'nai Yisrael. That's the way to read it. For others, read it, Anat Nafshi Tivat. Not only did I give the Torah, but I myself am found in the writings that I gave to you. Hashem saying about himself that he's embedded in those writings that he's giving over to B'nai Yisrael. Banan Amre, the Notrikun from Anochi is Amira Ni'ima, Tiva Yehiva. Again, the simple way to read it is that these are pleasant utterances. Tiva Yehiva. I gave in writing, which is the Torah, which is the pleasant utterances. I gave in writing to B'nai Yisrael. Here, the Rabbanon are slightly different than the previous statement by eliminating any possibility of anthropomorphism over here, where God wrote down the Torah. But rather, the way it's presented here is that God spoke the Torah and it automatically was written down. Not that God himself wrote it down, as in the previous statement. Some say, that you should look at the abbreviation of the word Anochi retroactively, meaning from the end of the word to the beginning of the word, starting with Yud, Chof, then Nun, and then Aleph. Yehiva, Tiva, Ne'emanim, Amare. I gave that which was written, and faithful are its messages, its words. So the Torah that was given in writing is everlasting. One who keeps the Torah will be faithful to Hashem, which is something that was forever, not just for the moment. Moshe again says that Yehiva, Tiva, Ne'emanim, Amare. That that which is given orally, the pleasant utterances, and the that which is given in the written. That is, that what is given orally must be kept orally. Torah Shebaal Peh. And the Torah Shebikhtav has to remain the Torah Shebikhtav, but the Tuta wrote that were given to Bnei Israel. Bei Rabbi Nathan Amre, they learn it out from the story by Bilam. Bilam, when he is going to Balak, in order to curse Bnei Israel on the way, his donkey veers from the path, says, Kiarat haderech lenegdi, that the donkey leaves because Malach stood in the way. And caused him to veer off the path. Yira, ra'ata, nitata. What was the yarata derech? 
Ira, he was fearful. He saw something that made him fearful. Rata, he saw the Malach and the Tata, and therefore he veered off the path. But now from the word Carmel, which is found by the bringing of the Omer, the Karbana Omer, it says there that it has to be Geres Carmel. So the Carmel is Kar Malay, which means that the ear is full, that the kernels are rounded, be that the kernels have filled out the ear entirely, that the kernels are fresh. All of those are true about the Geras Carmel. That's what it means here, Karmalei. This is David Melech when he's being Seve's son, Shlomo Melech, to take care of certain things when he ascends to the throne. One of them is to take care of Shimi ben Gera, to ensure that the score is settled. And the reason is because he cursed me a terrible curse when I was leaving Yerushalayim in the merit of Shalom. When David exits Yerushalayim, Shimi ben Gera meets him on the way out and curses him this horrible curse. So what is this Nimretzet, this horrible curse that he had cursed David on the way out of Yerushalayim? This is what he said to him. No, if, oh, David, you are an adulterer. Obviously referring to the Masebat Sheva. Avihu, you are a descendant of Moav, referring to Ruth, was from Moav. Roseachu, you are a murderer, referring to the husband of Bathsheba, which is Uriachiti. Sorerhu, you cause anguish, pain. Toivahu, you are disgusting. This is Shimi ben Gera cursing David on the way out during the merit of Shalom when David's basically being removed from the throne and Shimi sees his opportunity to avenge partly the loss of Beit Shaul. That Beit Shaul is no longer the king, but rather David, the Melch has taken over. And so he says that you, David, were unworthy of being the king and he curses him with these items, these issues, obviously, that were problems for David and Melch or questions about his lineage. So by the brothers, when they are in trouble with regards to Yosef and their interaction with him going down to Mitzrayim, they're taking responsibility for that which happened and say, What can we say? How can we justify ourselves? The Gemara Darshan's Nitzadak is Nechonim Anachnu, we are right. Tzadikim Anachnu, we are righteous. Torim Anachnu, we are pure. Dakim Anachnu, and again, that's in the Aramaic, that means that we are clean or pure. The other possibility is that Dakim means that they were humble. Kedoshim Anachnu, we are holy, which seems to be almost the opposite of the Pashtut Pasuk, which is Madaber Manitzadak, is that how can we justify ourselves? We have nothing to answer because we were guilty. But over here, the Gemara seems to say that the Nitzadak is actually making a statement about their Sidgut or their righteousness in this situation. Almost the opposite of the Pashtut Pasuk. Alright, the last Mishnah in the Perak is Akotev Bet Odiot Pashtut person writes two letters in two forgettings. Once in the morning, once in the afternoon. Rabbi Gamil says, even though it's two halamot, even though it's two separate forgettings, that means that you knew it was Shabbat in between. Nevertheless, you're chayav for the two otiyot. And the chomim say, you are patur. Two halamot, you have to be patur. So now Rashi claims over here that why is it that these are two halamot? So Rashi says, because Kevin ben time, since there was a duration of time in between, then he could have known. It's as if it was two forgettings. Not that necessarily it was two forgettings, just because the duration over which this took place means that we assume automatically that he knew about it in the morning, knew about it in the afternoon, he must have figured out it was Shabbat in between. This is very similar to what Rashi said in Klal Gadol, the first Mishnah in Klal Gadol, 
Rashi over there says, why are you chayav for every Shabbat? Because there are six weekdays in between. And there's no way that he could have gone through a whole week without knowing that there was a Shabbat. And that's what separates. Automatically, the weekdays separate between the Shabbatot. That's the way the Rashi learns in Klagado. That's also the way Rashi learns over here. Tosafot, in both locations, disagrees with Rashi. He says there's no such thing as a default knowledge. You can't just automatically know. Just because there are six weekdays does not mean that you remember that it was Shabbat. You have to remember in between that there was a Shabbat in order to be chayav for the next Shabbat. And similarly over here, it says that you have to have had knowledge in between. Not simply because one in the morning, one in the afternoon, then it's automatic that it's two elamot. But you must have had knowledge of Shabbat in between in order to divide them into two elamot. And that's one of his proofs or questions really against Rashi is, if you're right, Rashi, the Gemara never lays out, the Mishnah never lays out the duration which would trigger the automatic Yediyah. All it says here is one in the morning, one in the afternoon. How do we know what that means? How far apart do they have to be to assume this default knowledge? I mean, is it a 12-hour period, 6-hour period, 24-hour period? The Mishnah never gives you that information, and that's why they think that Rashi is wrong about there being such a thing as a default Yediyah. Here, Rashi and Tosafot disagree, similar to the way that they disagree in the beginning of Tual Gadol, in the first Mishnah, about whether this Yediyah is an assumed Yediyah, or is it an actual Yediyah about it being Shabbat. Now, the Gemara wants to know, what is the argument between the Chachamim and Rogamliel in the Mishnah? Again, this is something that we've seen before. Rogamliel, Savar, in Yediyah Lachatzi Shior. There's no such thing as a Yediyah until you've actually completed something that is significant. If you've done one insignificant act and then another insignificant act, the Yediyah, the knowledge in between, does not remove the fact that you've now accomplished a single significant item. On the other hand, There is such a concept of having knowledge that will break up the Shi'ur. In our case here, it means writing one letter, which is not significant in terms of writing on Shabbat. Once you have a Yediyah, you remember it's Shabbat, before you write the second letter, is that Yediyah sufficient to say that we have two events here, two separate events? The Chachamim say yes. The Yediyah, the knowledge in between is enough to make this into a writing of one letter and another writing of one letter. The Gamliel says Yediyah is only meaningful when you have a event or a significant action. Once you've had a significant action and then you remember, then you could say about that action that you've now separated between that action and the next action. Otherwise, the Yediyah is meaningless. You can only have a Yediyah about something that was forgotten. Forgotten in a significant sense. He forgot the Malachah that he was not supposed to do. Here he didn't do any Malachah until then. And therefore, there's no Yediyah in between. And the one letter in the morning and the one letter in the afternoon will be Mitzdaref to make you culpable for a Korban Chatat. Okay, with that, we conclude the Perek Aboneh. And now we begin Perek HaOreg. Rabbi Eliezer Omer. Again, we've seen Rabbi Eliezer before quoted in the Gemara. Which is, Oreg Shloshach Hutim If you weave in the beginning, you need to have three strings worth in order to be chayav. Vachat alarig. And this is what we had quoted from Rabbi Lezer before. If you're adding on to the existing weave, then you only need one string through. You don't need three strings. So what Rabbi Lezer is basically saying is to start from scratch, you need something more significant in order that it stays in place and that you've established a weave. Once the weave has been established, then simply adding one string is already a significant action to be mechayev you on Shabbat. Whether you're starting out the weave or whether you're continuing the weave, you need two strings through in order to be chayav.
So a person who makes two Batei Nirim on the Nirim. Again, we'll get to this in the Gemara, what exactly that means, to make the two Batei Nirim on the Nirim. Then also the word Kirus, the Gemara will determine what that is. Those are a sieve, a sifter, and a basket. Over there, the Shnei Batei Nirim are simpler to understand. It simply means to weave two rows worth. Again, we describe this when you have the lulav branches. You lay them out, the leaves of the lulav. You lay them all out on a horizontal. And then you weave on the vertical, you weave two through. One, and up, down, up, down. That's how you start it. And the next one, you do opposite the first one that you did, which is, the, if it was up, you could do down. And that's what starts the weave. Once you've done those two, you've created called Shnei Batei Nirim. Those two Batei Nirim, those two rows will hold the weave together because you have done them opposite each other. And that is the beginning of the weave. That's sufficient to make you culpable in each of these instances, whether it's with the Nafa, the Kvara, or the Sal, that makes you Chayav. HaTofer, Bet Firot, someone who stitches two stitches, Ve'hakoreya, Almanatlit for Bet Firot, or someone that tears or rips for the reason of restitching two stitches, then you are Chayav on Shabbat. Yatar of Yitzchak, when Yitzchak came, he brought a Brayta that says, Tani Shtayim. It says that our Mishnah or the Brayta read two. When it says, Vanan Tanan Gimel. Our Mishnah says that Rabbi Lezer believes that there are three in the beginning. One, if the weave already exists. And now we have a Brayta or an emendation to the Mishnah that says from Rabbi Yitzchak, that it was two that he said. Marcel Lokasho. These are not irreconcilable, but rather habelime, habedine. Depends on the type of weave, the string that you're using for the weave. Is it fat, thick, strong string, or habedine? Are we talking about thin, narrow, and weaker string? Which is which? The Gemara says we have two opinions. Amri law. Some say the high gisa. Some say that the three refers to the thicker string, and some say that the three refers to the Thinner string. Some say that this way. When you have the thicker, wider string, stronger string, then if you have three weaves, it won't undo itself. It won't unravel. On the other hand, two will unravel. When you have the thinner or narrower thread, then even two will not undo themselves. Because of the thickness of the string, the weave, the thread that you're putting through, when it's very thick, it doesn't stay in place. So you'll need three rows in order to hold it in place because it's a grosser type of weave. Therefore, it takes three rows. The thinner string is a tighter weave, a finer weave. And therefore, if you put it through twice already, that would be sufficient to hold it in place. On the other hand, there are Vamilala Haigisa. Some say it the opposite, that the Tine Talato. The thinner, narrower, weaker thread, you need three, because you deate. Then it's recognizable. You can see it. It's of significance. Trey, lo you If you only have two rows of weave, then lo you It's not recognizable. It's not easy to see. Alime, on the other hand, the thicker strings, trey nami you It's visible already. It's recognizable already when you do two rows of the thicker string, because it's thicker. And that two rows of the thicker string are equivalent to three rows of the thinner thread. Tanya, we have a brighter. Orei gimuchutim batchila vechad chayav. Someone who weaves three threads or three rows in the beginning, and then one on an existing weave, chayav. Chamim ben b'tchila ben b'sof. But it's beginning and the end. The shiran bet chutim, that the amount that you have to do is two rows worth. Ubisafa, if you are on the hem, then bet chutim berochav gimel bateinirim. If you're on the hem or on the edge of the baguette, then you need 
two strings worth, what's the width that you need? So far, we've only talked about the amount that you need in terms of weave across. So you have two rows of weave. But how long is each weave? So that's what they say here, that it's two weaves that are the width of three bate nirim. Ha, the mazetome. What is this similar to? The reg tzilzul katan. That someone who is weaving a small or narrow belt. Then you have bet kutim berochav gimel bate nirim. Person would do two rows of weave that has a width of three bate nirim. What the bate nirim is, is a good question. It could be that the bate nirim are the up and down of the weave. That the bate nirim is the up down of the weave. Which would be the similar to what we saw by the nafan kvara, the up and down. The other possibility of what the bate nirim are, which we're going to see in a couple minutes in the Gemara, is that on the loom itself, they have the harnesses, which are called the nirim. Those harnesses have strung into them little eyes, or eye of the head off, which are called the bait near. And they alternatively, they string the sheti, the warp, into those holes. And those holes then, they have two of these screens. Then they alternate the strings. And by working the loom, the two screens move up and down. By moving up and down, they move every other string up or down. And then you throw the shuttle through there. And that basically makes it easier to weave. Instead of you doing the up and down, these screens make the up and down for the strings. And all you have to do is throw the shuttle through on each instance. So that's what these batenirim are. See, the batenirim means a box. The box being that it's up and down. Or the similar to what we have by the loom itself is the batenirim are those that hold the strings to move them up and down on the warp. So the equivalent of two strings worth because it's every other string that is on that bait near. The fact that we said there that it's three chutin in the beginning, and one when you add on to the weave, chayav, that's stama, this brighta, or the tanakama, in this brighta, clearly holds like Rabbi Eliezer, is Rabbi Eliezer. Tanya idach, we have an alternative brighta, reg bet chutim alagas valimra, someone who weaves two strings alagas valimra, whether it's on the existing weave or alaimra, is in the beginning of the beged. It's the edge or beginning of the beged. Chayav, there you are, chayav. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, afilu echad. Even one. When you're adding on, you only need one. If you're on the hem or the edge of the beged, then you need two strings worth, two weaves. The width of three batenirim is chayav. To a thin or narrow belt that you use two strings, two threads of weave that are three batenirim wide. Gemara says, Gemara Based on the fact that it says here that you only need two strings on the weave, both when it's the gas, when there's an existing weave, or ayimra, on the beginning edge of the baguette, chayab, that's stama kirabanan. It means that the tanakama here, or the stama mishnah, is like the rabbanan. So we have two brightot. First brighta, the stam is like the rabbiliezer, and the second brighta, the stam is like the chachamim. Now the gemara asks, my binirin, what does that mean? Amarabai tarte bibate nira bechada binira. Rashi explains over here, bet pamim markiv lechut shel sheti bivat nira zainu shikorim licha, which is the the 
eye of the head hole. And that's what Rashi is discussing over here, the eye of the head hole, which is the bait near that we described before, is that which is on the near, the near is that harness, which holds on to the strings of the sheti, and elevates alternatively every other string, based on the two harnesses that are holding up the strings. And that's what it means over here. When we say, Tarte Beitanirim Binirin, means that you are putting two in the bait nira, Vachada Binira, and one that goes through the near. Because that means that every other string, so two of the strings are in the bait near, in the eye of the head hole, and the string in between them goes through the harness. It goes through the harness, but it's not held by the batei nirim. Because the batei nirim are what elevate the strings. So the one that's in the middle is going to be left behind because it's on the other harness. And that's how you create this two batei nirim that we're speaking about on the near. There are other explanations. I'm trying to give you the simplest explanation of this picture of it here. Here's the near, and this is the bait near. Two strings are on the bait near. The other string has to go through in between because it's on the other harness over here. It's on the other, it's on the bait near of the other near. So you have to make two batinirim, you're gonna have two strings in the eye of the head hole, in the leech, or the leech is what they're actually called, and one that goes in between that's on the other near, on the other harness. Alright, the next is Bikirus. What is Bikirus? Amarav Motsvita. Rashi says Motsvita is Biryat Gardin. Our Gimbaragel. You're talking about a foot loom or a treadle loom that is normally used by men which was much more extensive, and the up and down motion of the nirim was created by pushing the pedals or pressing the pedals. That's how the weaver made the sheti, the warp, go up and down, was by using the pedals to alternate the two harnesses that are going up and down, as opposed to a standing weave of the women, which was done either by physically moving it up or down, or having one harness that moves up or down. Rashi says once we does that is the same function in this loom as Kana Haula Viorade Biriot Arigat Nashim. In the woman's loom, they have a staff, a stick that is used to push down the woof, the strings that you are weaving through the warp by pushing the shuttle back and forth, they have to be pressed down to make sure that the stitching or the weaving is tight. There's a kaneh that is used in order to do that. We bumped into this kaneh before because that was the malacha of middakdik. So that is the kaneh that is found in the woman's loom. In the men's loom or the pedal loom, treadle loom, foot loom, there what's used is something called a kirus. A kirus is basically a frame, looks like the side of a baby's a frame that has uprights in it, and the warp runs through it, and every time you run the shuttle through, you pull this back in order to force the weave to be tight. So it does the same function as the kane in the woman's loom. That is what the kirus does in the men's loom. I sent that a picture that you can see this. All right, now the Gemara says, what about this? Hatofer bet firot, someone who stitches two stitches. It says, hatanina bavot melachot. Why are you bringing it again in our Mishnah? We already had it in Klal Gadol when it enumerated the 39 melachot. Over there, one of the melachot was a tofer bet firot. So why would you repeat it again in this Mishnah? So it says, shum de kabai lemitna seifa. Because you have to write the latter half of the Mishnah now, which is a Korea, amenatit for bet firot. Taninami atofer. Because it had to teach us about ripping or tearing. That the tearing, the amount of tearing is that you have to tear enough that you're going to repair through the tearing bet firot, two stitches worth. Tear on the assumption that you're going to stitch up two stitches. Therefore, it wrote a tofer bet firot and then a korea amenatit for a bet firot. That's also mentioned in the 39 malachot in the Mishnah in Kalagado. So that can't be the reason that they are repeated over here. El Mishum the Gabai Lamitna Seifa has to do the Seifa, which is the next Mishnah. Gurea Bechamatova Meito, someone who tears in anger or over the deceased. Da da da, that's the next Mishnah. Shumachik Tani at Tofer State Firot. So that's why it had to introduce. We have to get involved in stitching, because we got involved in stitching, because we're going to get involved in tearing. 
And we're getting a voluntary because we're going to introduce a new type of tearing here that was not mentioned in the mission in Klagodo, and then it's tearing over the mate or tearing because of one's anger. Alright, Mishkachala. How did that happen? What's the case that he tore two threads in order to stitch up or the amount of two threads? And that was constructive. The Avda Kekisita. Because he did it like a kisita, Rashi says that when you stitch and if you've ever woven or stitched, what ends up happening is that at a certain point you might stitch too tight. And if you stitch too tight, the item that you're stitching actually starts to fold up or the equivalent of shrivel up. It, it pulls. Right? It's lumpy. It pulls inward. So what you're going to do is you're going to cut those tefirot that are causing the pull in the item. Once you cut them, that will release the pull. The rest of the stitching will be there. But how much you have to do, that's what we said here, is a Korea. He rips out those two stitches, or t- the amount of two stitches, because that allows the beggar to stretch back to its normal size or its normal width. And then you'll have to restitch that area because you ripped them out or you cut them in that area. And that's Korea, Almanat, Litfor, State Firot, and something that is constructive in nature. Next, Mishnah. Now, this Mishnah is a very interesting Mishnah, and the Gemara that goes along with it too is a very interesting Gemara. As well as the way the Rambam reads this Mishnah, which is a Someone who rips out of anger or because of his mate. And anything that is destructive on Shabbat is patur, turim. On the other hand, if someone does something destructive in nature, but in order to fix, to be constructive, shiro and the shear that you use is the constructive side of it. So that's what we just had before. Hakoreya, which is a destructive type of malacha. If you do it in a constructive form, which we just described before, you're doing it because what you do by ripping it, you're actually fixing something. Then the shiur of the destructive force is almanat lit firot, the amount that it would take to stitch up two firot. You know, the constructive side of the malacha. So we have here. Shiur the amount that you have to do to be chayav for these milachot. Hamilabein is someone who bleaches. Hamilapets, someone who comes. Vatsoveya, someone who dies. Vatova, someone who spins. Is kamlo rochav hasit kaful. It's double the amount of the width of a seat. The width of a seat is the distance between your forefinger and your middle finger. So it's two times the distance between your forefinger and your middle finger, which the Gemara says is the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. This is when your four, four, thumb and forefinger are going to the Gemara is equivalent to two times the distance between your forefinger and your middle finger. The standard, which is someone who weaves two strings, the amount that you have to do is hasit. Loasit is the distance between your forefinger and your middle finger. So the amount you have to actually do in the weaving is smaller than the amount of the preparation of string for the weaving. All the other malachot that were mentioned here are items to prepare the thread or the string to be used, whether it's bleaching, dyeing, combing, spinning. All of those require twice the shiur than the actual weaving itself, the width of the weaving itself. Someone who tears because of their anger in their state of mourning or for deceased is chayav. Our Mishnah says, patur. Even though he's in violation of Shabbat, because he's tearing on Shabbat, which is inappropriate, he is yotzei the kriya. He has an obligation to tear kriya 
for the mate, the deceased that's there. So we're talking about someone who is obligated to be mitabel, to mourn for the deceased. And one of the things they're required to do as a mourner is to rend their garments. So the rending of the garments that's required here is constructive because you're accomplishing the mitzvah. So in accomplishing the mitzvah of tearing the kriya, that type of tearing, even though it's a destructive force to tear, it's constructive in nature because you've accomplished the obligation upon you to rend your garments. So that's the reason you're chayaf, even though you violated the Shabbat. But our mission says you are patur. So how do we reconcile? Lokasha. Finds why he rips or rends his garments. If it's for his own mate, then he'll be culpable. He'll be chayav because he did something constructive. He's yotze yidei kriya. The obligation to rend one's garments as a novel, as a mourner. But mate da'alma, if he tears kriya over any deceased that he's not obligated to mourn for or tear kriya for, that would be patur. Vaha meitoktani. How could you say that? So Gemara says, that doesn't work so well, that explanation, because ha meitoktani. Both the Mishnah, our Mishnah, and the Brighter that we just brought, both say Meito, his mate. So you can't say it's mate, his mate, and then mate, the Alma, because they both say Meito. They both have the possessive form of mate in there. So the says, okay, we'll have to say that, the Olam, the Both the Mishnah and the Brighter are talking about his own mate. Someone that he would be connected to, is related to. That we're talking about a case, or a differentiation between a mate that he's obligated to mourn for, and a mate who's a relative or somebody that he tears Kriya for, that he is not obligated to mourn for. You're only obligated to mourn for the seven relatives that are mentioned in Parshatim more by the Kohanim. And that is a mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, and wife, husband. Those are the seven Krovim that one is obligated for, to mourn for. So if it's one of those seven Krovim, then that's what the bride is speaking about, because that's a constructive Kriya where he's obligated to tear Kriya. And therefore, it is Chayav on Shabbat. Our mission speaks about anybody else that's a relative but it's not one of those seven relatives that you're not obligated to mourn for and therefore you're not obligated to tear Kriya. In that case, you're patur on Shabbat because you're just mikalkel when you rend your garments on Shabbat. The Gemara says, okay, what exactly is the situation here? Because, if this mate that he's not obligated to take Kriya on because it's not one of the seven Krovim, if he's a Talmud Chacham, he's still obligated to rend his garments. Titania, Chacham Shemait, if a Talmud Chacham passes away, everyone is considered to be his relative. Everybody's his relative? That's a, a fact of life. You can't become a relative just because he's a Talmud Chacham. Everyone's like his relatives, meaning like the seven Krovim, and therefore Hakol Korim Alav. Everybody rends their garments, tears Kriya over this mate. Hakol Chutzim Alav. They tear their garments to the point where it falls off their shoulder. That's a sign of Avelut. They also, the first meal of an Avel after they return from bearing the mate is a meal they may not eat from their own food. They are provided food from others. In their day, they used to put a big spread out on the street and everybody would eat together out on the street. So, so to over here, everybody is a part of this meal, is entitled to be a part of this meal because they are classified as Krovim of the Talmud Chacham. It must be a case that he's not a Talmud Chacham, and that's why in our Mishnah. If he happens to be a person that is Kasher, that is proper, upright, upstanding Jew, 
Then he also has to rend his garments. Tanya. Why does a person's children pass away? When they are still minors. In order that he should cry and mourn over upstanding Jews. I says, I don't understand. Today is written in the future tense. So what do you mean? They're taking a deposit from him. They're taking collateral from him. They're taking his young children in order that in the future he should cry and mourn over these kshevim. No, the wording is wrong here. It's not in the future tense, but rather in the past tense. The reason that his minor children pass away is because he did not cry and did not mourn in the past over an Adam Kasher, an upstanding Jew. Kol abuchel Adam Kasher. Anybody who cries over the loss of an upstanding Jew, all the sins are forgiven, because the honor that, the respects that he paid towards this individual. Case in our mission has to be a case where it's not somebody's obligated to mourn for, it's not a Tamar Chokham, and not an Adam Kasher. I says, well, there's another problem, if he's present when the person passes away, you have to tear Kriya for being in the presence of someone whose soul departs, irrespective of your obligation in terms of mourning. This is if you are present when someone departs from this world, you have to tear Kriya, you have to rend your garments. Someone who is present when the Nishama leaves the body of someone, Chayav the Kriya, you have to tear Kriya. What is it similar to? A Sefer Torah, Shinisrefa. Like a Sefer Torah that is burnt. Someone who sees a Sefer Torah that is burnt, or being burnt, must rend their garments, is Chayav, obligated to tear Kriya. Learn that out in the Gemara in Moed Katan, from the story by Yoyakim, where they're burning the Megillah. And over there the Navi says, Lo pachadu v'lo karu that they were not fearful and they did not rend their garments, implying that what they did was wrong, that they should have torn Kriya. Therefore, you have to tear your garments. Rashi says something very interesting over here. It says, Af nishmat Yisrael, any Jew, Anitela, that is passing away, you have to tear your garments, because in the Charek, Yisrael, Shein Torah mitzvot. There's not a single Jew that does not full of mitzvot, that the Gemara says in other places, why are Bnei Yisrael Domei the Rimon? Because they are Malayim mitzvot kerimon, that they are filled with mitzvot like the Rimon. Even the lowest of Jews is still full of mitzvot, and therefore any Jew, if you see a passing away of a Jew, you're present at the passing away of a Jew, one would have to tear Kriya, one would have to rend their garments. Okay, so the Mishnah is talking about a case where he's not present at the time that the person passes away. So now we took care of our Mishnah. Our Mishnah is a case where it's not a relative he's obligated to mourn over. It's not a Tamar Chacham. It's not an Adam Kasher. And he's not present at the time that the person passes away. And that's why you're patur in the Mishnah. Because the rending of the garments is not constructive. Because you were not obligated to tear Kriya in that case. When it says, great. That took care of Tinach Mito. That takes care of the stira between the bright about the deceased. Ella Chamato, Chamato Gasha. We still have a problem about anger. The anger in the Mishnah is Patur. The anger, tearing for the anger in the bright is Chayav. When it says, Alo Gasha, that's not a problem. Because Harab Yehuda, Harab Shimon. So there is between either you hold of Rabbi Yehuda's position or Rabbi Shimon's position. Harab Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, Melachash ain't srichal gufa, Chayav If you do a Melacha, but you don't need it for the same purpose as the Mishkan. That's what Tosavot says, or Rashi says, that it's not done in such a manner that it ends up being that you need the utility of the object that you are doing, or the Melacha that you are doing. So in that case, you are, according to Rabbi Yehuda, Chayav. 
Whereas, according to Rabbi Shimon, the Marvel exchange will go to So our Mishnah will be authored by Rabbi Shimon, because he's ripping out of anger. Does he need the tear? The answer is no. The tear is not because he needs the tear. He's tearing to release the pent-up emotions with his anger. He's tearing to release those emotions. So the tearing is not done for the sake of the tearing itself. It's for what the tearing does for him emotionally, and the tearing itself is, quote-unquote, irrelevant. So in that case, that's what we call Malachash in Tzricha Gufa. Again, in the Mishkan, tearing was done in order to rectify a problem, and then to restitch it up. And so therefore, the tear was necessary to get to the next stage of stitching it up. And according to Rashi, that the tearing done was specifically because you wanted the tear not because of any other side benefit of the tear. And so over here, that's exactly what you have. Here, someone's tearing out of anger is not the way it was done in the Mishkan for the purpose of the Mishkan. It's also not for the purpose of the tearing. It's the purpose of assuaging his anger. And so because of that, it's a malachash and sri And we've said other places in the Gemara Shabbat already that Rabbi Yehuda thinks you are chayav, midoraita for that. And Rabbi Shimon says it's patur of Allah Suri, only chayav midorabanan. So Rabbi Shimon will be the author of Mishnah. Rabbi Yudah will be the author of the Braita. Gemara says, "Imer dishmayit leder Rabbi Yudah b'mitakein." Rabbi Yehuda might say, "Melachot shenitzricha the guva is chayav." When you talk about constructive melachot, b'mikalkel mishmayit le. In destructive melachot, who says that he agrees that melachot shenitzricha the guva is chayav? Am Rabbi Avin, Hainami mitakein who. This tearing is also constructive. Because he has this emotional release, this cathartic experience when he rips his garments over the fact that he is angry. So that release of emotions is considered to be constructive in nature. If that's really true, if that's why you're tearing, is that really mutar? Someone who rents his garments out of anger. Someone who smashes his utensils in his anger. Someone who throws or disperses his money in anger. Like someone who worships idols. This is the methodology, the modus operandi of the Yetzara. Today he says do a little thing. He makes small steps. He slowly pushes the person towards idol worship. He doesn't do it in one shot. Nobody would acquiesce. Instead, he does small baby steps and takes you down that path. He pushes you, pushes you step by step until you go to Avodah Zarah. So I'm Ravin Maikra. Maikra, what's the pasuk that says this? It says over there that you should not have a foreign god, and you should not bow down to a strange god. But what's interesting about the Pasuk, it says, Lo bicha. should not be in you, Elzar, a foreign god. So the Gemara is interpreting here, what does it mean that there should be no foreign god inside of you? What's something that's inside of you that is, quote unquote, a foreign god? That is anger. That's the emotion that comes out from inside of you. And therefore, And also, do not bow down to foreign or strange gods. The Gemara sees those as being a prerequisite or a continuum. That a person who allows the El Nechar inside of him, the anger inside of him, will eventually lead to the bowing down to the strange gods. What is this foreign god that is found inside of the person? This is the evil inclination. 
So therefore, the evil inclination who causes him to be angry and release that anger will also take him down the path eventually to idol worship. It's a step along a continuum that's not going to end well. My says, No, it's a case where the anger is permitted. That he is, wants to engender a certain amount of fear amongst the household, the people of his household. He wants them to realize that this is something serious. He wants them to be on guard. It's not anger for the sake of anger. It's not anger to release the emotion anger. He's tearing or breaking something in order that the people around him understand the severity of the issue. Shalif Matzvaita, that Rabbi Yudha used to rip off something or tear something off of his begot to show that he was upset and that they would be fearful, that they would be on guard. Rav Achabar Yaakov, Tavarmani, Tavirei. Rav Achabar Yaakov used to break broken utensils. So it wasn't a problem being wasteful, but he took already broken utensils and broke them more in order that they understood that he was upset. Rav Sheshit, Ramilala Amte, Monine Aresha. Sheshit used to take the fish brine and pour it over the head of his maidservant. Rabbi Ava Tovar Nechtama. And Rabbi Ava used to break the covers of the barrels of the pitchers. Now, given the Gemara's conclusion, what's very interesting here is how the Rambam codifies this, the Allah. The Rambam in Hilchot Shabbat, Perak Yud, Allah Yud, codifies this issue of a Korea, ripping one's garment because of anger or because of a mate. The way the Gemara seems to conclude over here, that ripping one's garment for anger is not considered to be a tikkun, is not considered to be constructive, only if it's done in a demonstrative way is it considered to be something that is positive. And with regards to a mate, we're there, Tosafot believes that the reason that it's considered constructive is because you're making the mitzvah of Kriya for Avilut. Rashi indicates that maybe it's because Rabbi Yehuda is the author of the Mishnah. We'll discuss that more tomorrow, that machloka between Rashi and Tosafot. But that's the conclusion of the Gemara. On the other hand, the Rambam, when he codifies, writes this, Balakorea someone who rips in order to destroy something, Patur Beneshu Mikalkel, Bechamato, someone who rents his garments out of anger. Or I'll mate over the deceased who chayav likralav that he's obligated to tear kriyav for chayav. He is chayav mipnei shmiyashevet da'ato because it settles his mind it assuages his anger and then he will be calm afterward. And because his anger is now been extinguished. It's like he fixed something with chayav. Two things that are interesting in the Rambam. The first is that he says what is considered constructive about tearing in anger is exactly the point that the Gemara seems to reject, which is the fact that the tearing does something in order to settle the anger of the individual. Number two is that the Rambam says by the tearing of a mate, one of the reason that a person tears by a mate, it seems, from the Rambam is also as a emotional release. And that the Kriya that is done by Navel is not simply a rending of the garments because of the obligation. It's not to engender some emotional release, but rather... It is a result of the emotional release. And because that emotional release, the person tears the garment to release that emotion that they're feeling over the mate. Those are two very interesting things that the Rambam says. Number one, about tearing Kriya over the mate. And number two, about what's considered to be a tikkun when one tears in anger. And we'll discuss more about the Rambam Shita in Mikhail Kalim, which is very unusual, in tomorrow's daf. Anybody who sheds tears over an upstanding Jew, and Kodesh Baruch Hu counts them, and places them in his storehouse. 
You counted my wanderings. You placed my tears in your flask. Take my tears that I shed and place them into your storage, into your flask. Aren't they written in your book that Hashem tracks the tears that are spilled over the Kshirim and He preserves them in order to reward those that cry over those that are Kshirim? Anybody who's lazy to in a eulogy of a Tamar Chacham, he's worthy of being buried in his lifetime. They bury them, it says that they bury him on the edge of his property in Timnat Serach, Asher Bahar Ephraim. It is in the mountains of Ephraim, Yoshua is from Shevet Ephraim. It's a phone Hargash, north of Hargash, whether Hargash the modern day meaning of the word Hargash means a volcanic type of hill up in the Golan Heights. You have these cones that pop out of the ground that are mountains, which they call Hargash. So that's Hargash has this meaning over here as well, or whether Hargash is a proper noun in the place. So that the Hargash, the Gemara is interpreting to mean that Hashem wanted to put a mountain over them and kill them. Because they were mitatzel in the eulogy of Yoshua Binun. They didn't take care of Yoshua Binun properly. The reason the Gemara assumes that they were mitatzel, that they did not eulogize or take care of Yoshua or be mitabel over Yoshua properly, is because we find by Moshe Rabbeinu and by Aharon, when they passed away, it says that the people mourned them, that they cried over them, they had an availut for an extended period of time. We don't find any such mention by Yoshua. And because of that absence, that omission, because I'll believe that that was an indication of the improper treatment that was given to Yoshua in his burial. Person who is lazy or does not make sure that the eulogy of a chacham is done properly will not have a long life. That is a midah keneged midah. It's a a measure for measure. Shemar b'sasa b'shocha terivena. Gemara uses this pasuk in other places. Gemara brachot we saw it already. B'sasa b'shalcha terivena. The exile you by the measure contended with them is an indication of midah keneged midah that Hashem acts with those that act improperly. Eitvei Rabbi Chiyah Ba'avir Rabbi Yochanan v'Yavdua Amet Hashem Koy Me Yeshua v'Koy Me Azkinim Asher Yichu Yomim Achrei Yeshua. The Am worshipped Hashem all the days of Yeshua. And all the days of the Zkenim, of the elders after him, that were many years after Yoshua. So that sounds like the people were fine. Even after the time or the death of Yoshua, the people behaved accordingly. Which indicates that they were Marich Yamim, that they had long lives, even after the burial of Yoshua. So if they didn't give him a proper eulogy, and the Mida Kenegad Mida is that their lives are shortened, why are they having long lives after the burial of Yeshua? It says, Yamim. So Malay Bavlai, Babylonian, referring to him, because Rabbi Chia Bar'alva came from Babel to Eretz Israel. says, Yamim Eirichu, Shanim Lo Eirichu. You're right, they had long days afterwards, they didn't have long years afterwards. Eirichu Yamim is that they had a long number of days afterwards, not a long number of years. Elamiata, he says, back to him, that's the way you're going to read it. When the Pasuk, the end of Yeshua says, Laman, Yerbu, Yemechem, Viveim Vinechem, what are you going to say? Yamim Veloshanim? That one who does this and acts accordingly will have his days extended and the days of his children extended. You're going to tell me now that that promise, that brach of Hashem just means that you have long days. You have a long number of days, but not long years. That doesn't make so much sense. When it says bracha shiny, bracha is different. It's said in the constructor, the positive form, we read it in the most expansive way. 
which to me means even shanim. When we're talking about a curse or something negative, then we read it in the most narrow sense. One of the brothers passes away. All the brothers should worry. If an individual amongst a group, whatever the grouping or designation is, whether it's those that learn together, whether it's those in the same profession, whatever that grouping is, if one of them passes away, the entire grouping should worry about it. They are a part and parcel of the group, and therefore if they pass away, it's as if Hashem took something from this family as a warning, took something from this group as a warning. Gemara Moed Katan describes it as a pile of stones, and if you pull out one of the stones from the pile, all the stones move. And that everybody's affected or impacted by the death of one person in the Chaburah or in the family. Here it's specifically maybe about the family, it might be true in the Chaburah as well. The question is, the one who passes away here, are we talking about the youngest of the brothers? We're talking about the oldest of the brothers. In the Chabura, we're talking about whether it's the elder statesman or the youngest or the most important person in the grouping and the least important person in the grouping. We have dealt to both sides. As Rashi says that the mate Katan, we're talking about the youngest or the lowest here, is because that's the warning shot. Shem is sending a warning shot over the bow to say, listen, uh, there's something wrong here. So he takes the youngest or the lowest, and that's a warning to the others to be careful. And the Amri law, some say that it's the Gadol because the Midah to Din and the death happened to the elder statesman, to the oldest of the brothers. That's an indication that something's wrong and therefore they all have to worry. So there are two different opinions as to which one you should be worrying about, whether it's the oldest brother or the youngest brother, the most experienced elder statesman or important versus the youngest or least important. Okay, we'll stop over here.